Welcome to Splunk Talk, 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 a Splunk podcast that's all Splunk and no junk. I'm your host, Birch, here with co-host, Hal. This episode is number nine, and we'll soon be joined by today's guest, Jesse Miller. But before we go any further, let's cover where Jeremy is. Jeremy is not here. Jeremy is not in the building. Jeremy's not here. Jeremy is not in the building. Jeremy is prepping for, I think he's already covered in a prior episode, his uh, upcoming paternity leave. So I think we're going to be flying solo for the next couple of months for all he's, great reasons. He's prepared us well. He's, yes, he has trained us Padawans very well. But uh, I'm excited. So um, there's recent news that I wanted to reflect on that uh, in and it was funny because I didn't choose my, my Zoom background today until I realized, wow, that must have been subconscious that I chose that one. But that's the news I, I talk about. Man, we a, launched some stuff into space. That was pretty awesome. As, as a, uh, you know, while we were queuing up and getting ready to go, I saw that background. And I, I know being your, your Facebook friend that you were pretty lit up by, uh, by the rocket stuff. And um, I actually thought it was a deliberate choice and I was fully prepared for you to bring this up. <laughs> so I guess that's just a really arrogant way of, of me being like, look, I thought I was smart. And you're like, no, it was actually an accident. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had um, often when I start the week, I will queue up uh, or pick a few new Zoom backgrounds. And this one is a video clip from the ISS. Um, it's, a, it's a video, you know, kind of rotates slowly. I'd done this four weeks ago, three, four weeks ago. So this was actually not something I did in, in, because of the, the launch. And then this morning, I just randomly chose a new one because it's what I do in the morning sometimes. And I was like, oh, that'll be cool. Wait a second. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, anyone watching this out of, out of uh, current events, out of timeline, um, we're still we, alive. Uh, we, yeah, we're still here. Um, the... Uh, SpaceX successfully launched and docked their Falcon rocket uh, with the International Crew Space Dragon. Station. It was Dragon full, and then the heavy uh, Falcon. I think was the, you know, the the, the big lift. Yeah, and um, that being notable. So if anyone listens to this many years in the future, this this was uh, when maybe this is not as um, interesting, but that is the first time private enterprise has sent. Uh, sent people to space. Yeah. By the way, private enterprise was like the most dull person in my unit back in army. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Private enterprise. <laughs> Were you in the army? No. Okay. <laughs> I can't trust a single thing you say, can I? <laughs> no, not at all. It makes me think of Arrested Development when uh, 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 the the youngest of the family always refers to army, not the army. I'm okay. going to army. <laughs> private enterprise i need to watch the show like arrested I, I just need to like sit down and just make time just just watch a whole bunch of episodes i've seen a lot of clips i've never oh. watched a show straight through and it's so good it's so awesome it's really good it's really good yeah. very one of the smartest shows and then you it, it's it's kind of like memento you can watch it again and realize like subtle jokes that are set up that actually only make sense once you've seen the success of episodes Mm -hmm. So it's it's a very rewarding show. Highly recommend it. We're not being sponsored. 
Yes. Um, but yeah, so the rocket, the rocket's red glare. Tell me, tell me, how did it make you feel? I, I know you were pretty psyched about it. And I, was, I think yeah. our guest is going to join us in just two minutes here. Yeah. Um, I was excited to basically share something like this with my kids. Like it was, it was a, it was a current event that's um, positive. <laughs> You know, um, yeah. I think we kind of needed one of those lately. And that's, that's as species. much as I, I think we'll go down the negative, the negative <laughs> right. news lately. Yeah. So, you know, it was just um, pretty awesome. Um, and I remember growing up, uh, I want to say, I don't remember what grade I was in, but I want to say, you know, there were several successive, you know, events related to space early on in, in you know, our kind of elementary, middle school, whatever timelines where um, that was a pretty cool thing to be thinking about space and learning about space as these things happened. And that changed over time with the priorities of the space programs. Um, and, you know, the ISS, it's been up there for a long time, but the, the, mile, the, the, the milestones related to it are not as obvious and big. So you'd have to kind of be like a space buff to really have a reason to go get into it. Well, this is a new event for, you know, people to get interested in that again. So... Yeah. Well, I always, um, I always admire the space program, um, for theoretically being one of the things that, that drove American industry by creating an entire generation of, of kids that wanted to get into science and mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how hard it is to create a cultural catalyst like that. Yep. Um, yeah, that, you're not wrong. That, uh, and, and it's education, um, is, is a key to things that happen on such a long-term scale, and if somebody is interested and that changes their path, I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. I, um, yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the, the rocket, um, definitely being some, some good news there. Um, I have to say, you, you, you know, I, I have not been able to get a haircut in, um, <laughs> maybe four months now. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, you look like you may have gotten a haircut. No, no, it is simply the addition of product which I never, oh. ever, ever do. And I was looking at uh, myself in the mirror and I was thinking, you know what? Um, I, I kind of look like um, maybe like a, a down on his luck street clown. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was just thinking that was not the, the best look for me. So, you know, I actually took one of my wife's like leave-in condition or whatever, just, you know, fixed it up a little bit. So my like hair is, is also um, a little on the long side. Yeah. But I was already lazy about getting haircuts, to be perfectly honest. So this okay. really just suits me to not have the pressure that I feel like I need to go get a haircut. I had just gotten back to buzzing along the sides, and now I am far from buzzed <laughs> on the sides. My, uh, I think I could braid my sideburns right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I just got uh, joined a new team at work, and, and my boss, he has a pretty full beard. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll just, you know... Do that too. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Do you want to talk any more about your, your new function? Um, Emphasis on fun? Um, what is going to be fun about the new job? I'm still thinking through what all it means. And try, try well, to it means we get to work together more. That's, that's true. That, that will be fun. There we go. Yeah. That's my fun. Yeah. Um, no. So I'm, I'm going to help um, our pre-sales engineers um, do what they do better. So building programs that help um, 
you know, people uh, do what they need to do in terms of helping the customer and, you know, getting to the finish line. Hey, I've got a project because, you know, my customer challenged me to, you know, to have a, you know, a project, that, a product that could do this and this and this, and we want to prove it out. I want to help people be successful in that. So that's what I'm going to do. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Working with a lot of new people. I so think it's, that's, that's it's also, it's different because you'll now be in, in more of like a thought leadership role. Um, because uh, you'll be establishing a lot of things that are, um, that are, that are going to affect the way other people work. Yeah. It's funny. And, uh, I was um, uh, talking with a, a colleague of ours earlier today and asking him about advice as I, you know, move from a, um, from an individual contributor role into, into leadership. And he's like, well, careful what you say, because people before they'll just say, Oh, he's just sharing his opinion. But now they might take something you say as gospel, even if you didn't intend that. So you yes. have to actually, it's not that you have to not share things, but you have to think about how you're sharing something and who the, the audience is because they're going to take what you said and run with it. I had that happen to me once, um, actually with a conf talk. So bringing it, bringing it back to Splunk. Um, I was trying to convey a concept about cl- index or clustering. Mm-hmm. And the premise was like, if you know that you're going to be going to index or clustering, it is possible to turn everything on with a replication and search factor of one. And so you, you're effectively not clustering, but the bucket structure changes so that when you do start clustering, anything since that configuration change will get replicated. So right. it gives you a little more of like a backup or a resiliency when you do increase the factors. I butchered the explanation during the conf talk. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of people walk away, especially, I mean, I've heard it in the recording. A lot of people walk away and, and the, what I conveyed, which is not, tr- not good <laughs> advice was, uh, was basically like as, as simple as just turn on index clustering with a replication and search factor of one, no matter what. And a lot of people were like, but that increases the complexity of my environment if I don't want to do clustering. And I was like, oh, that came out wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do like the idea. I mean, we may as well just continue on in the tech vein for a little while until our guest yeah. shows up. It's like, yes, it's more work. You know, learning how to administer clusters, that's like a whole other, you know, series of educational courses, for example, in our official course where there's more to it for sure. But if you are already going to be headed that way, right, it's actually useful. And there's some consistency that comes along with it. There's some, you know, uh, you get some kind of um, higher availability type of features that go along with that. So, you know, even if you don't replicate the data, you could say, for example, I want to, um, you know, put a cluster uh, member or a slave in detention, uh, you know, and, and or do some maintenance, you know, and, and have, you know, the ability to automatically move those buckets around if you wanted to do that. Yeah. Well, yes. Once, once you have some replication going on, um, I think you could still um, take down and enforce counts, and basically, uh, the cluster master will move all those buckets elsewhere, even if they're not before replicated. it shuts down the peer. I think so. I think so. I think I'm not. You know what? I don't know, so I'm not going to t- say it in a very strong manner. And have yeah. people do do, do your research before you do that. <laughs> yeah, but the point here being that there are some features that come along with it. 
right? Yeah. So it, you know, it's it's not like there's well, no benefit. It's it's only you know more work. It's no, you actually get some benefit as along with it as well. And I think I think to your point, if you're if you know that you're going to be enabling clustering, indexer clustering, it is a nice way to break up the workload. So instead of going from not to then having now I got a master node, now I've got replication copies, now it's you know everything's different. It is nice to break up the work and say like, okay, I got a you know I'm going to start with a VM as my master node maybe, and set a search and replication factor of one, mm-hmm. and at least get the configuration of the cluster going. And then I know that I'm, you know, adding storage or, or adding more servers or whatever, and I'm not going to increase my replication or search factors until I get there, but at least I'm taking one step mm. towards that end goal. Yep. So what are some other tips related to that that we could share? Your best practices kind of guy. Yeah. Or gal. Well, I mean, me, I'm not asserting anything. I'm not trying to put you in a bucket. I'm just contacting our guest. Our esteemed guest, yes. Yes. Well, um, why don't you do that? So I'm thinking. I, go ahead. You can talk. Uh, what, what was the question? Uh, given given my, my best practices background? Yeah, given your I, best I practices like, background. Um. I guess one thing I would say is um, if people haven't looked at these Splunk success frameworks, right? I mean, do we have any metrics about how many people have um, gone through some of the, the survey collateral? How many people touched at previous, you know, conf in-person events? Anything along those lines? Yeah, not not immediately. Yeah, yeah. Splunkable. It would be interesting to know how many people went down that path. Um but I know that I have a couple customers, you know, that, that I had basically um, encouraged and then, you know, so later, you know, kind of shepherded them through some of these things. Um, whenever, whenever anyone asks you, um, you know, I'm, I'm saying you and the, not, not you personally necessarily, but like, Proverbial. yeah, whenever someone says, hey, I want to get better at running Splunk. I want to, you know, some a common term is center of excellence. Uh, we want to build a center of excellence around Splunk. Well, we, we've documented a lot of the things that are required there, and that's the Splunk success framework. So it's not um, your efforts were very, very good there. Thank I you. More people to, to know that they exist. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's. Have you ever heard the quote, art is never finished, it's only abandoned? Hmm. Hmm. No, I've not. Okay. Well, I think about that a lot because um, there was so much more that I wanted to do with the success framework, but never, never got the the time, the opportunity to uh, to really see it through to what I my my full vision. But yeah. um, speaking of enhancements and making things better, we've got Jesse joining us uh, just in a second here as he connects to audio. So he he can see us, but he can't hear us, and we can't hear him. It's like he's a ghost. That's one of the features about Zoom that was always odd to me. It's like, you know, you got the ding in your ear, and then your immediate response is to think, oh, hey, Jesse's here. Well, I mean, not yet. I mean, now he's I am. Now All right. Now he is. Sorry, I'm like, yes. What's going on, man? Long time hey. no chat. I know it has been a while. You and Bertrand I'm good. Chatted, but I have not chatted with you. 
Splunk well, Talk podcast. This brings back some memories. How yeah. many? Uh, how many such chats had you been on with um, with Wild? I think just the one. I think it was right when they were getting started a long time ago. That would have been really cool. You guys have picked up the torch. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's let's decode 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 that for a second. Um, for for people that missed like our first episode, uh, Splunk Talk was but predates this. We, this is a uh, season two as a way to distinguish our our reboot from the original. Um, how it, it it even predates you, right? It was uh, oh, yeah. Mav and. And Wild yeah, it was, at uh, first. Mm-hmm. Yep, Michael Wild was was number one, and and he teamed up with uh, Maverick. And for old timers that that heard the um, uh, the Splunk Talk jingle, that was actually a song produced by Maverick uh, back in the day. Is that and, the one uh, we use today? Or say again? Is that the one we use today? I didn't stitch it that into anything recent, so probably okay. not. Okay. You'd have to go back to the season one recordings. Yeah. Um, and then the the podcast, um, you know, just it faded a little bit. And then I went up to Wild, uh, who I was I was friends with, and and you know, loved talking with him in general principles. Anyway, it's like, dude, you know, we got to make this thing happen again. And he and I recorded a, a good handful of episodes, not a not a ton. Um, and then we brought in Clint Sharp as a third, and and that was fun. And then uh, people moved around, and you know, it, it faded again, and. Now we're back at uh, in the new, the new evolution. You know the new current format that you see today. And I couldn't help but notice that you you mentioned um, you used to like to talk about uh, general principles with um, Wild. Yeah, I I, mean, I think that was fascinating the commanding gentleman. officer for private enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse was a, a a guest. You were a guest on one of the the first episodes. You predate us. It was a long time ago. Wild was my uh, Mike Wild was my first boss at Splunk. He was one of the reasons I, I joined. I had a great interview with him. He just felt like a, a fun guy to hang out with. I, I didn't, you know, my one of my funny stories about coming to Splunk is I didn't even really believe in the story so much. I was a Linux sysadmin uh, at the university out here, and I, I knew my way around grep and I, I could set it all up. I had no problems, and I I just didn't. I wasn't quite at the scale that Splunk really uh, kills it at, and I wasn't asking the questions that Splunk can really solve. Um, so yeah, I was like, oh, it's just logs. That's not interesting, you know. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, but I really got into you know having a good conversation with Wild, and he seemed like a fun person to work with. So that was one of the reasons I came was just good people. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so I you know he, I worked for him at first, and he got me all. He was the original demo master. Um, really helped me refine all the ways you talk and what words not to use and how to put pauses in and going back and listening to recordings and you know, he's the one who's like hey you know you, you say actually about uh, five <laughs> times a minute like, oh, you respond so i start listening to my recordings I'm like oh my god I, I do say actually all the time and uh yeah you know all, all those little things that you add them up and it, it really helps so yeah so i my first uh time on Splunk Talk was I mean, about almost 10 years ago. And we, I, I just looked it we up. Talked about, I found you twice. Splunk Talk. Number oh, really? Three, <laughs> uh, August of 2011 and Splunk Talk 59 in November. Look at that. You have the archives. That's, it's, that's Google. I mean, that's before Splunk Talk IPO'd. <laughs> <laughs> so how many years have you been at Splunk, Jesse? Uh, about nine and some change. I think 10 is in February. 
Oh, nice. Oh, I'm wow. like in my 10th year, whatever that means. But yeah, so, so it's been it's been some time. Do you know what your number is? Your, your 357. Number? It's an easier number to remember. No, that's your employee number. Uh, that's my employee number. That's right. I am in, I'm you in a, the sub 100s. You got to be. Are you, a prime, are you a prime employee? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I guess so. 357. I think so. I think that's a prime number. So, um, yeah, I guess walk us through a little bit of the, the history of, of what you've been doing at the company over those um, almost 10 years. Stopping immediately uh, sure. at the most exciting project that you're now working on. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, so I, I started off as a sales engineer on the inside team, it was called, and now I think it's called the commercial uh, segment. And essentially that was just working with customers on the phone all day long. Um, basically people who hadn't downloaded Splunk yet or people who were trying to get started mostly, you know, using maybe 10 gigabytes a month or a day of, of data. Uh, a lot of people in the 500, 500 megs just looking to figure out what Splunk's all about. I probably spent, I don't know, four or five hours a day demoing like every day for months. Um, it's the point where like the, the demo was playing in my head when I was dreaming and I'd wake up and I'd be like in the middle of a demo. And that was when I knew I was like, okay, maybe I need a little bit of a change after a couple of years of demoing my sleep. Um, yeah. So I, I, it was fun. I've actually built, uh, helped build some of the earliest instances of the Splunk deployments at some of our now larger customers uh, when they were just getting started. And so it was really fun for me to, uh, at least now to look back and say, oh yeah, I remember when we first sold them their first license of Splunk and now they've totally blown up and I've actually gotten a chance to come back and be their engineer many years later. Um, so yeah, we did you know a lot of demos, a lot of setting up of deployment server, making Splunk seem easy. It was a lot more challenging than it is today. And I think that's where the, the SEs you know, really showed our value. It was just, hey, you know, we can do all this stuff with it. And we were working with people who, it was one admin who managed maybe 10 or 20 different services. It wasn't a dedicated Splunk admin. Mm -hmm. So we were really doing a lot of the admin work for them. Did, did a lot of that work. Did uh, There was a weekly web demo, which is a great way to kind of build up your presentation skills. We were doing a demo a week for a larger audience uh, online. Um, By the way, what did that what? for a while? You mentioned like it was it was hard to administer back then. I know like four three was like a big or like around then was like a big version change in terms of the sim simplifying administration. And then obviously when things like clustering um, came out, that obviously took a lot of burden off while introdu introducing some complexity. What give us yeah. uh, some sense of like what what versions were you uh, working with customers on? Yeah, I think I I think I joined it about four two. Four okay. two, four three. Um, yeah, it was easier and harder. I mean, there were fewer things you could do. We didn't have data models. We didn't have clustering in the same way. So, yeah, to your point, it it definitely introduced complexity. But we did make a lot of you know UI changes. Being able to you know, the deployment server got better over the years, and that really helped. Um, you know, trying to manage individual forwarders is a nightmare. Um, I mean, we made improvements to a lot of the, like the UI tools that made things easier. Um, but actually, you know, one of the sort of a segue into maybe my next jump at Splunk was I, I was a vocal advocate on behalf of customers that the product was too hard and confusing for people who had 10 other systems to manage. Mm -hmm. And so if you only have an hour a day to try and do something in Splunk, then you're probably not going to be diving into all the docs and knowing all the ins and outs and the, the warts of the product. Um, that we had back then. So I, I, I started going to the, these offsites where it was the product management team and some people from the field, and they would give us a chance to 
beat up on the product managers and the product managers would hide and then uh, and then tell us about what they're going to build on the next version of Splunk. And and I, I basically had this soapbox that I brought along with me every time. And I said, you guys still aren't listening to, you know, the smaller customers that represent maybe maybe 50% of the, the number of people out there using Splunk. Um, Splunk was investing heavily in scale um, because that's where the data needed to go. And I, I, you know, I understood that at the time, but I still felt frustrated that we could be making a lot of investments to make the product easy mm-hmm. and intuitive. Um, so I complained enough that they gave me a chance to kind of put up or shut up. And so they offered me a job in product management to run um, initially uh, the competitive intelligence side, but pretty quickly that switched into making, getting data uh, onboarded more easily. And that was, uh, I had so many grand hopes and so few resources to to execute on that. But we did manage to, to get ourselves out of, we had some, there's some funny endless loops that you'd get into if you tried to add data. It'd say, okay, if you wanna add syslog data, click on here. And then it'd get you into a place where you couldn't get out of it. There was like no back button and you oh. could only get back to the place where it took you. And so, so we certainly fixed a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I had wanted to do features like deployment, um, client management from the UI and things like that. But uh, a I, lot I of that question. got cut short. What, what did you learn when you went into the, the product manager role that you did not expect beforehand? Um. I'd, I'd say I, I, I was I was surprised by, um, you know, it, it doesn't exist today as much, but there was a pretty big divide between the kind of back end engineering mindset and the front end engineering mindset. Mm-hmm. And I kind of sort of expected that it was all sort of one team, um, and while it it was, we were all at, you know excited to be at Splunk. There was still a lot of contention of where the development resources were going to go. And it was really frustrating because I, I had all these great ideas on how to make the product easier. And most of it was on the UI, but we could only do so much without having to build features uh, in the back end to support new UI workflows. And then you had to deal um, with different teams and different priorities that those teams had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that, that, was, that was surprising. I mean, I, I had assumed that, oh yeah, I'll just be given a, you know, a team of... A, an engineering team that included front end and back end engineers, but actually I only had a team of front end engineers and I had oh. to kind of go and petition. Be like, okay. Oh, can I get a quarter of a sprint of like a back end engineer's time to build this little feature? Um, so that was, that was one part. I was also surprised on how many um, cool Easter eggs and fun things that the product was able to do that wasn't really documented. And, and unfortunately has been since pulled for reasonable reasons. Yeah. Like what? Um, you got to give us some specifics there. Yeah, I mean, so like there, there's a command called crawl that you could run um, on a Splunk instance that would basically go and look for files to monitor on a file system. Hmm. And um, and I, you know, I thought, oh man, that'd be so cool. Like, what if the forwarder could go and crawl and then serve up through the internal logs? Here's all the available data that I could monitor to a deployment server and the deployment server is like, oh yeah, just add those, good to go. Mm-hmm. You know, easier said than done from a security and compliance perspective, but um, there's a lot, there's a lot of really brilliant things that um, I think the the initial couple of years at Splunk, uh, a lot of the, the, the great ideas that made Splunk what it is came from kind of those brilliant minds like David Carrasso, for example. I mean, his mm-hmm. he wrote the whole algorithm of the field extractor. He wrote that crawl part. Um, a, a lot of that, the search helper where it suggests terms for you and 
provides all that, you know, that was all kind of out of his mind of making things simple. You know, he, he wrote that, that post on like, Hey, if you're, if you're a database person and you're, you think in SQL, here's how you might want to be thinking in, in Splunk. Um, I'll take a break here. I've been rambling a bit. <laughs> well, no, it's, and that's what we want. I mean, we want to hear those types of stories that, that nobody outside of the company would ever have a chance to hear. So to- totally appreciate that. Cool. I, I think he even, uh, David, was, had his job title might have been like Chief Mind. Yes, yeah. this is correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, for people that, that aren't familiar with him, we unfortunately lost David uh, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, great guy. And and he was uh, at the time, uh, he was my boss actually. And so we were on a really really team together. Yeah, yeah. I worked for Sorkin, uh, who worked for Carasso. I don't know if I said that correctly, but That's you know funny. what I'm talking about. And uh, yep. that was when I was a developer evangelist for a little while, for about a year. Oh, okay. He was also a chief troll. He was oh, a, the, yeah. the the greatest troll who's ever lived. He was so funny. He was he was always he always had some witty thing to to get you with. It was great. And by well, tra- chief little, troll, we're not talking about some little thing that he did on the side as a part of his interactions with his coworkers. <laughs> you you Google the the man, you will find out what trolling is all about. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, one of the first people that linked two bulletin boards together to basically take him down. I remember hearing stories about how he'd post one that would rip auto reply to the other one. This is, you know, way back in the BBS days. And yeah, he yeah, was uh, he's, big he's on, on Usenet and, uh, and, and BBS. And yeah, there's some stuff still out there if you look for it. <laughs> yeah. he, um, he was so fun that uh, each quarter when we do our company all hands meeting, we have a, uh, an award ceremony where we embrace our, our values at Splunk by awarding people that have been nominated to um, – are different that have exemplified or, or demonstrated uh, one of the five different core values of Splunk, innovative, passionate, disruptive, fun, and open. And the fun award is, has since been named after him. Yep. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one, one, one other thing I'll add about Carasso, cause he, I learned one of the coolest little snippets of SPL for doing a uh, clustering from his, his old, website it was I think it was innovato.com. I don't know if that content is still up there, but you probably on the archive, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-O. And there was a page, I'll never forget because I showed it to people all the time, called What's in My Data. And he talked about using the clustering command and he talked about using a lot of the built-in um, commands that he had written and, and worked with. But one of the, the more brilliant ones that I uh, really had wished that I had gotten a chance to build into the product when I was doing search was doing clustering on punctuation. And so some of the audience uh, might know or some might not. We've got this field in Splunk called punct, P-U-N-C-T. And it essentially strips out all of the alphanumeric characters of every log. And what you're left with are characters that represent spaces and slashes and colons and underscores and things like that. And so it's a way of doing a structural uh, representation of the data. And so you can cluster your data based on its structure. Um, and it's a great way to find the you know 10 most rare types of events and the 10 most common types of events because especially with machine data it's very even though we call it unstructured there is definitely structure in there it's more more mm-hmm. reasonably called semi-structured data so what you know people have been using the punct field for a while but one of the tricks that he uh, showed was that you know if you if you do the entire punct of the field 
you're probably going to get way too many different values because there's going to be little variations here and there. So you might end up with like 100 or 200 different punctuation you know, mm -hmm. types. But if you use the rex command on punct, rex being, I'm going to extract a field at search time. I'm just going to extract, let's say, the first 10 characters of punct. I'm going to call it small punct. Oh, okay. And then what you can do is you can say, show me the top 10 or most rare 10 small punks, which is really, and you maybe you get rid of the, the timestamp and it's you actually just taking a chunk inside of the punctuation field and you can move that around. You can make it bigger and smaller. And I thought that was, you know, I use that with hundreds of different customers data sets mm -hmm. and always, that was the one that always exposed. I say, Hey, I'm going to show, I'm going to, I'm going to type in the word error or fail or crit or accept, you know, with the star, the, the error search. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to tack on this SPL and I'm going to go to the rare ones. And I basically would challenge customers. I'd say, I bet you I can find an error here that you've never seen. And I'd say at least like, I don't know, 75% of the time, I'd run that in a workshop and somebody would like jump up and run out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so the, so does the cluster command use the punct field to this day? I, I want think to say, cluster is more of a term-based command. You could be right, but I think at one point... And that's what the patterns tab kind of uses. Tied, exactly. And it is... It is it is actually a term based command. Okay. Um, I so I did take over. I was so close. I when I took over search, I inherited the patterns tab. Okay. And um, there was there, you know there's a whole history behind that that could probably fill a whole show, but it had intended to have additional capabilities to it, but um, you know for one reason or another priorities got shifted around. But when I got, it, I was like, oh, I can finally add you know uh, structural clustering, clustering instead of term based clustering term-based being, hey, this word shows up a lot in this mm -hmm. in this place, right? And it helps you build event types like that. Uh, but no, we, I don't think we have a, like a punctuation or structural-based uh, clustering capability that's, that's built in like a, you know, UI mm -hmm. click tool. So let me try to um, parse back some of the things that we said there in case anyone's like relatively new to Splunk. Um, okay, so in, in my stream of unstructured data, there, if I just think about my application logs, something that's custom to to my company, my application, um, there may be an inherent pattern in the way we output the logs. We always start with the date. The date's always in this format. And we always then have some kind of message. And maybe we then have like a semicolon with like a, a code or whatever. And what what we're saying is that Splunk actually automatically processes all these events and when you run a search we'll tell you hey in case you're curious if we remove all the letters and the numbers and just look at that punctuation that's left the the semicolons the spaces the dashes the underscores uh the special characters the these are the structure the structures or the patterns that are in your unstructured data and so what you're saying is um you know if you actually take a subset of that you can start doing some really cool uh, clustering or, or cohort analysis and see, finding those anomalous things. Maybe they're error messages that just don't happen as often, or maybe they're logged messages that um, the developer screwed up and didn't follow their, their API and um, it's not you know, up to their standards. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. It was great. It, it was incredibly useful. So you, I think, I think actually his field extractor uses that type of analysis, right? The algorithm of, Hey, I'm highlighting a, I'm highlighting a term like error. Cause mm -hmm. I really want to extract 
all the different log levels. I might have errors and warnings and infos and debugs. And those usually happen as like the first word after the timestamp. That's very common in, in terms of like where it goes, maybe after the host name. And so, you know, you could highlight that piece of text and just, just the one word error. And it would say, oh, you probably also want to grab warn and info and debug. And he's doing that by looking at the structure of that data. Well, it's like after the third space, he's not looking for actual word. He rarely will actually look for a word as part of that algorithm. So I think he, he basically used this methodology in that field extractor. Interesting. So, so back on, on you, so you were um, PMing the gated, getting data in aspect, um, but then you alluded to the fact that you, you eventually transitioned into search. Um, tell, tell us about that. Anything in between? Um, yeah, I mean, I was doing the getting data in aspect, and then my uh, manager at the time uh, left the company, um, and she had search, and so I ended up getting it just through attrition, um, which I was really excited about because I, I used it heavily, and I thought that search was sort of the most important part of our product um, that brought value, and that pretty you know pretty soon being able to collect data would be commoditized, but the fact that we have 140 different commands that can really do amazing things would be a lot harder for a competitor to to build still has been. Um, and so, you know, we started working on that. We revamped the field extractor to make it more easy. And we revamped the, um, the search helper because there were some weird bugs in it. And now it has things like syntax highlighting on a lot of features. But um, probably the biggest project I worked on at that point was trying to, we called it internally simple search. So how do we make search easier? And, um, you know, that, that conversation, we spent a week in like the dungeon of a hotel room. It was, it was horrible. We, got, we all got together, this dev team, and there were no windows, and we just whiteboarded and, and thought about ideas creatively. What could we make easier? And we decided that um, rather than make investigation easier, because people were doing a pretty good job at that already, um, that's really Splunk searches, you know, bread and butter is finding the problems, uh, the war on error. And... You know, what we found is that people really struggled to prepare data to analyze. Really, analyzing data was the hard part because data is messy. And, and sometimes you have to replace values because sometimes values have, you know, a person's name might be Jesse Space Miller or JS Jesse Dot Miller or Jesse Miller, all one word. And so often you've got to do these text manipulations or you've got to extract data from different places. And one data set may actually have, you know, we call it a, a I like to call it a heterogeneous or homogenous um, format. If if my data all looks the same and I line it up and it just, the columns kind of line up, CSV is sort of like this. It's the single format. That's really easy. But the nature of machine data, as many of you guys know, is uh, is heterogeneous, meaning that it's got many different formats. Mm -hmm. And I, I always use the Cisco firewall ASA log format as the example because there, you know, there were so many different things that it would describe all the way from, hey, the firewall blocked a connection to a, an administrator made a zone change or a rule change to an ACL. And each one of those things <clears throat> had a complete format. So if you wanted to write a report on that data, you were probably going to get a lot of data that shouldn't have belonged in your report messing things up. So we decided to kind of go after um, a kind of a type of analysis or prep work called data prep, um, which is sort of a the, the non-glamorous part of being a data scientist. If you talk to any data scientists out there, everybody likes to show off, you know, great algorithms and, and the machine learning, all this fancy stuff you can do with it. Nobody wants to talk about the dirty work, which is about at least 75% of your work is the data prep. 
Because if, if you don't have clean data, you have garbage. It's garbage in, garbage out. You put in crappy data, you have crappy analytics coming out of it. So we decided we'd try and make a, an interface that exposed the, you know, 30 most common reporting commands that people would use to replace values or run arithmetic on data or um, perform a lookup and enrich the data and allow people to do that not just from a, a GUI perspective of having a menu-driven system with forms, but providing it with a, a tabular interface. Because if you've ever tried to prepare or understand data in the Splunk search interface, you know sometimes you get a block of text that's this big mixed in with maybe some, a JSON blob, which looks really structured, and then you have unstructured data. It's a mess. You're trying to stare at the screen. You can't really understand even what is in your data. Mm-hmm. So we said, you know, Databases have these things called views and structure has value. And that was another thing that I think is a surprise is, you know, there was a, there was sort of a culturally inside Splunk, there was a resistance to doing anything that um, smelled like a relational database because yeah. that was kind of our, our whole identity was we are not a database. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how we competed. We said, well, definitely, you know, our technology uh, is so great. When, you, when you're customer facing at Splunk, when you're interacting with customers, and and even when you are a customer at Splunk, trying to tell people at your own company about it, one of the first questions that always came up is, "Oh, cool, what database do they use underneath?" Because they wanted to know about how always. scalable it was. Right, right. And so there became a, a huge, you know, chip on the shoulder and and pride about like, no database. Oh yeah, no, we don't have a. We're not using a database. There's you know, and and no, no schema became a little bit of a term around the time. Yeah, so it, it's the the resistance to you know feeling like a relational database. It's it it was funny, but you know if you look at at the circumstances, it it kind of makes sense. Oh, it totally made sense. It didn't really serve us very well because no. the use case, you know, reporting in this case, the use case requires a table of data. So yeah. you got to treat that use case like you've got a first class something, which I think you're about to get to. Um, yep. you know, what, what do I do with this data? Is there, you know, some, the view, um, of this data that I can persist and, you know, work with that, like a knowledge object, another knowledge object in Splunk. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that was, you know, I told people, you know, as sort of this argument was, you know, relational database have been successful for a reason. That doesn't mean that we have to force people into that mindset and view, but, you know, providing them the ability to have a formal schema that is reliable and that lets them view their data in columns. Because if you're looking at all these different values, oh yeah, what was, okay, I'm looking at an error. What were the associated values of that error? Trying to find that in a paragraph of text is a nightmare, but trying to find it in a table is really easy. Mm-hmm. So we so we built this tool. Um, it was kind of two parts. One was called data sets and that was the, the, the kind of the back end object. It was sort of like a data model. Um, and their part was the table UI or the table interface. And it kind of went hand in hand. The table UI was for building table data sets. Um, we also wanted to try and simplify the the, con- the conceptual model of what a data model was. I think that, you know, in some ways we, we built data models almost for our own purposes to be able to um, help products like enterprise security scale to, to really high volumes with these crazy search loads. So we, we built data models from a, top-down perspective of, oh, you know, the developer of this application, they know everything there is to know about how this data should be structured and organized. And they're going to go and build out the entire scheme of all possible objects and relationships and hierarchies of all these objects in that data model. When, in my experience as a sales engineer, relational 
data model. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. But people didn't think, you know, people who were working in, you know, on the data, they off, they often thought in the building blocks. They they wanted a bottom-up approach. I just need to build a table right now, one data set. I don't need to build a full model to answer a question. One simple data set, one little table. And then over time, I might build another one and a third. And eventually, I'll have enough objects, enough tables that I can kind of put together a model of how these things relate to each other. So that was that was the main goal of you know simplifying that part of search was give people a mental model that was not top down for organized schema structured data that was more bottom up and also give them an interface that let them take action on this data and prepare the data without having to know the ins and outs of our of our language which if you know it it's it's fun and it's it's incredibly powerful but if you're just getting started and more importantly if you only have half an hour or an hour a day to spend in Splunk because it's not maybe your only tool that you use, you need some help. Probably need some help. So let me let me challenge you a little bit on the I mean these these concepts are uh they're challenging concepts to learn. Um, abstraction it, it you know for example the to abstract things here an abstraction of data is a hard concept to learn when you're first learning about computer science in general. Um, and the way that these things connect together, you have to kind of understand a whole lot about the underpinnings before you can understand why you need this abstraction. Like, why do I need a data model? You know, oh, okay, so that I can then accelerate it because I have this reporting use case, you know, that, and so do you think that we got there? Do you, do you think that we're done with this or, you know, are, are there better ways that, that you can kind of portray some of these things? Because there's a developer who's thinking about maybe the way that I write an SPL command. That's a lot different than somebody that is going to then use a report on that data. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they're totally, are we there? I think we're not, we're not there. Um, I think that going back to, you know, why we built data models originally was a performance goal. It wasn't really to help people understand their data. It was, it was really to serve our, our teams to build tools that could be accept, like data sets that could be accelerated so that we could show massive amounts of data really quickly. Um, so well, I think we made it from that perspective. We, we set, we achieved the goal of letting, of, of, it was a performance metric. More you know, we, we needed to have this particular actu- activity, you know, be a hundred times faster or whatever. Oh yeah. A hundred thousand. It, it was incredible. And mm-hmm. so we definitely succeeded there, but, I don't want to say we failed the other place because it wasn't a goal. I, I never heard anybody telling, you know, talking about data models as a means to help people um, locate data sets or understand like, or serve a catalog of data. Um, and I think Splunk has desperately needed a, a data catalog for quite some time. And you can't really have one of those without a formal structured, you know, model of where the data is and, and how it's related to it itself. Um, and so that, you know, finding data, locating data, and then also understanding data. I think that was something else that never really got talked about was you've got a date, you've got a data set and I'll, I'll use it more in the general term, not the Splunk specific term. Somebody put, pulled in a bunch of data. Let's say it's from a jet engine. There, there's probably multiple subsets of data inside of that that are trying to tell you different things. Right. Or maybe it's the data coming out of an airplane seat, right? There's a lot of, what's a person doing? You know, is it, does it have to do with how they're interacting with the, the, are they using the phone on the plane? Are they interacting with the console? Each one of those things are a subset of that data source. And I think that you need, what we never really talk about is how do we help people understand that data? 
And so that was, I would say, we have a long way to, we still have a long way to go to help people make sense of all these different types of data. Um, and like I said, we failed because it wasn't really a, a formal goal of ours. But yeah, I think, you know, we, we have made that more of a goal. Um, and I think that we're, we're going to be seeing um, good, some good improvements coming on that. So table data sets, the, the add-on, was shipped outside of the core product. If I recall, that was the first time that we did that, where we had a feature of the product that wasn't shipped in the box. Do you recall if that was uh, the... Did we ever do yeah, that before? I, it may have been the first time. Um, you know, there were some. It was a, it was a it was a, a volatile time, kind of internally at Splunk at the time. So there was sort of contention, and and that that uh, feature actually almost didn't make it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, luckily, we sort of saved it by pulling it out yeah. as a, as an add-on. Um, we also wanted to track it. We wanted to know is this something people would even use? Because you know, from a market standpoint data prep is a is a huge thing out there that Splunk hadn't really gotten into yet. Um, and we wanted to make sure that, you know, the second we make it a first class is, product. It's funny because we're actually feature, really good at it. We are. We we're incredible focus at it. on it. Yeah. But I think the minute that you, you, you show first class feature in the product that we're doing it, all of a sudden the market might say, oh, Splunk's now trying to be a data prep. Mm-hmm. platform and then we get compared to and against tools that maybe we weren't quite ready to, to compare against we were just trying something out mm-hmm. so that was another reason why we took the app approach was that um, this is a way for us to kind of dip our toe in the water and say hey you know you know do people like this is this what they want to mm-hmm. do um, and if it is then we can take that that data back up because with as an app we can track how many people download it and, and mm-hmm. install it and today I think there's something like 25,000 installs and 70 something thousand download. So we got that data back that says, yeah, people definitely use it um, and it has value. So let's bring it back into the the product um, so that it's, you know, accessible without having to get an add on. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So, so just kind of moving things along, because I'm anxious to talk about what you're working on now. Uh, Where did you go after working on that? Yeah. Okay. So I came back to the field I joke that I'm the one person Splunk that can't figure out if I'm a product manager or sales engineer. Started as an SE, went to PM, went back to sales, uh, worked with instead of the smaller customers, got involved with some of the larger customers while I'm still in the Bay Area. Um, worked on some of the, the the bigger deployments up until last November when um, Jeff Champagne um, contacted me. And, and I worked with Jeff on my principal project as a sales engineer. I became a principal uh, SE last year. And he was my mentor for that. So we worked together and I think I generated some, some good faith with him. Um, and he said, you know, I'm working on this thing called ideas out of the, the voice of the customer initiative, which is the, the sense of, Hey, let's give our customers uh, better insight into their enhancement requests. Um, when I was a product manager, I remember receiving about a thousand enhancement requests, which were essentially support cases of saying, Hey, we, you know, we need this feature to be improved or, or whatnot. And it was a you know when massive you say essentially like, support cases. We actually had uh, it was support level four P four P four. That was the category for an enhancement request, but it was it was no. a support case. Yeah, it was support case. Uh, so I remember I got a stack of them, and I had and you know an anxiety attack because like what am I supposed to do with a thousand P fours? Couldn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, there was no analysis of it. Uh, so I kind of you know swept them under the refrigerator and forgot about them. Uh, and 
and then I, you know, now Jeff's coming back to me a couple of years later saying, we want to do something better with enhancement requests. We want to have a formal process where not only is it not going to be a support case, but it's going to be a platform that lets people vote and say, you know, we're going to, we're going to work with product management and say the top voted ideas out there, product management is going to look at, not necessarily commit to building, but it's going to get some eyes on it. Um, and, and this was something that, you know, the first thing I said, and then he asked, you know, would you want to work on this? And I thought, was, oh, what a great kind of return to my original goal of as a as a first SE, complaining that nobody listens to the masses. We invested heavily in the scale to support the larger customers. And now is finally a time for me to to try and address that, not as an individual product manager, but to help build a platform that allows the, the entire community of all customers and users of Splunk to file ideas, vote on ideas, and, and track them as they move through the process of being reviewed and hopefully developed. Um, so that started in, we started building that in, in November. I started with Jeff. Jeff had been looking at other tools for maybe nine or 12 months before that. And as of February 1st, I moved over back to products. Um, and I'm now on, on your team, Birch. We both work for Jeff. I'm, and I'm I run team. Splunk Ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and so now what does um, I'm Splunk Ideas. It's, it's 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 kind of a dream. It's great. So it's live. People can go to it right now. People can go to it. We even have a blog post. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to the, our our blog, blog blogs.splunk.com, and it's under the tips and tricks category. But I'm doing a quarterly blog series. So I did my first quarterly one last month, talking about sort of like the genesis of Splunk Ideas and and how it came to be. And the next one coming up is going to be how it works. Um, and yeah, to date we've got uh, over a thousand ideas. You can just type in right. Splunk Ideas blog, and you will find that uh, blog post in, into your favorite Excellent. Alta Vista. Yes, or ask. And, and if you have a if you have a Splunk account, you can go to ideas.splunk.com, and you you can log in with your Splunk.com kind of website account, uh, and you'll be able to look at all the ideas out there and vote on them. Um, and so there's over a thousand ideas uh, today that we are tracking between internal external ideas. Um, and there's over 25,000 votes across all of these. And this is just since our launch of February. So I, we're really excited to see a lot of traction here. We're seeing ideas that have already moved into development sprints. Um, and so we're seeing some, some real good indication that, um, I mean, I'll be honest, the first question I asked Jeff when he talked about this job was, you know, does this have support at the highest level of the products organization? Because I didn't want to get into a place where I'm going to build something and then product managers are just going to kind of treat it as if they're more in P4 sales, you know, uh, mm -hmm. support cases. And he said, Oh yeah, this goes all the way to the top. You know, we, we have, we've talked about holding PMs accountable for at least reviewing a certain amount of ideas every quarter. And so that's what, you know, that's how this, this platform we've built. We have an internal Splunk app that kind of analyzes all the votes. We have these different cohorts where votes come from, you know, um, unique customers, design partners that we may have with other, um, with some of the customers, strategic customers, community groups, all these different groups represented for cohorts. And we analyze the votes in a, in a way that helps us protect against the, the users who are a little too clever and think that they can just um, <laughs> ask a lot of people to upvote their most, you know, important ideas. So, uh, so that was going to be very, my next very question is like, what does a good idea look like? <laughs> no, but you got it on the docs. But seriously, what does a good idea look like? I mean, are, are there things that, that we are looking for versus are not or things that um, make sense in, to ask here versus not? You know, is there, you want to tease that out a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll put on my product manager hat and talk about like an agile scenario. In, in one way, it's just when you think about something, think about who's going to use it, what's it for, and, and what does it make better? So whenever I write a scenario, I want to tell somebody about a feature I have in my mind or an idea, I go through this mindset of as a blank, so as a security um, incident reviewer, when I am, so as a blank, when I blank, I need blank so that I can blank. And so you kind of create that framework of a sentence and you just fill in those blanks. So, you know, as a security incident investigator, uh, I need to be able to look at all of my threat intelligence lists uh, and the status of those to make sure they're up to date so that I know that my analysis that I'm seeing represents the latest information from the security community. It's a really simple one, right? But so part of the idea is making sure that you really formulate who's going to use that idea. How is it useful? Uh, making sure it's not too big. It needs to be something that can, you know, you're not trying to boil the ocean and say, oh, I want the idea to be, make Splunk easier. Like, no, that, that, uh, like sorry. Vague. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not vague. Very specific. Um, and, you know, we've got lots of categories for you to put it into. And what's great about the platform also is that when you try and submit a new idea, it does a text search against all the uh, existing ideas. So it may say, oh, this looks a lot like this other idea. Maybe you want to just vote that one up. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can save you a lot of time as well. So what um, what have you found anything like particularly surprising by doing this? Anything you've run into that you were like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that to happen as, as customers start to engage in this? Um. I mean, I think the volume was very surprising. You know, I was a little like bit worried right that, you know, right off the bat that we'd have that much to go. And, you know, certainly the Splunk Trust has been a great um, team team member of ours on this. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was about to bring, bring them up if you didn't. Yeah, they... Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, they were our beta users. And and they were really great with, um, like, even I was submitting something and and they were challenging the submission. Like, hey, what about you know, this already exists or, you know, whatever, whatever the valid, very valid reason was. Um, and it was really nice to know that they were out there helping punch up the ideas and, and, uh, and, and make sure that the votes were, were going to the things that earned it. Yeah. Uh, so I have a surprise. It's not so much from a submission perspective, but I was surprised to see how many one, how many lists exist inside of Splunk of, Oh, this is, this, this customer's top 10 ideas, and this is this organization's top 10 ideas, and essentially how much we were making decisions based on not really data. Um, like and, anecdotes. You know, based anecdotes and influence and, um, you know, so for us to really have a data-driven approach to knowing what to build, I think is just fantastic. Um, it's a long time coming, and I think product managers are really excited to not only have great ideas, but have defensible ideas. Mm -hmm. So when somebody comes to them and says, hey, why aren't you building this thing? And they said, well, I'm building the, these things because they have all these votes from all these different cohorts around the world. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because um, I don't know about you guys. I've definitely been in conversations with product managers where they were looking to me to be the authoritative answer for the entire world on how to do a certain thing or how to build a certain thing. And yeah, I'm, I might, you know, have a great idea or a good view based on what, you know, conversations with one or many customers, but I didn't want to be 
necessarily in that place of saying, okay, no, you should definitely, you know, move this widget over here. I mean, sometimes it's, it's not quite that simple and you just have to, you know, realize that, that, you know, I, I can't speak for everybody. Some, sometimes I definitely wanted to speak, speak in that way. Listen, you know, I'm not going to kid myself here, but um, yeah, being a little bit humble about it. Well, if you have data, then you can actually back that up and be defensible. Like you said. So we've just got a few minutes left here, but, but I, I want to make sure people, you know, let me play, let me play dumb, which is so easy for me. Um, if, uh, okay. So, so I have to pay for this, don't I? Totally free. Totally you don't free? even have to be a Splunk customer. So I just go to ideas.splunk.com. And if I don't have a Splunk.com account, I can create one, which is free. And then you I'll be do able that to, see to download this. Splunk to, to, to play with Splunk. We have a free version of Splunk that you can use on, in your own home environment. Nice. And that's the same account that I, I would use if I want to post on answers or, or anything like that. And then, that's right. Same account. And then um, now let's say I, I submit an idea. So other people, um, other people can then vote on it. And so it's, it's kind of a democratic means of, of trickling those best ideas to the top. What if like the, the PM that receives the idea and, and starts working on it, what if they have any questions? Are, are they able to like contact me as the idea submitter? Uh, yeah. So that information is available to the PM as part of the license agreement of, of essentially having a Splunk account. Um, so actually the first thing that happens often is the PM will reach out to, uh, to me or to someone on, on our team. Uh, Cause you know, if there's questions, often we're the kind of that front line that can help clarify that. And, and they might change that status from under consideration back to triaging. Triaging is a status of when the field PM or the voice of the customer team, Birch and I and, and Jeff and, and Michael, um, when, when it's in our queue and like, okay, you know, clearly these are the top ideas based on the ranking algorithm we have, but we need to go and make sure that the categories were defined correctly. It's in the right product. There's not too many ideas bundled into one. It's, it makes sense that the feature doesn't already exist. So we do all this review before it hits the PM's desk. And so if the PM has additional questions, they'll push it back to us. And so often it'll be us that, that helps the product manager or maybe someone on the UX team reach out to, the, to find the appropriate customer. Maybe it's the person who submitted it. Maybe it's somebody else who's also submitted many other ideas um, in that type of category or it's a design partner or a customer advisory board member who's indicated that they really want to work with us on that. Sounds like a lot more transparency in terms of being able to log in and, and see the idea and see what status it's at and and so forth. Yeah, and, and thanks for the reminder because one one big thing is when you submit an idea, you you are automatically subscribed to it, and you can anybody can subscribe to an idea as well. So if you want to know when that idea is moving to a different status, oh, that's now under consideration. Oh my gosh, it's under development now. It's in development. You'll get email notifications for that. Nice. So that was a huge, you know, that was one of the major reasons we, we built this in the first place was that customers were very frustrated that I, they, hey, what happened to my idea? It's been there for two years. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, any idea, if it hits enough votes, you're, it's not guaranteed to be built, but you will be guaranteed to under, to know what's going to happen to it. Very cool. That's pretty cool. So I know we're, we're out of time. We should probably just kind of ask, uh, you know, Jesse, any kind of closing thoughts? Um, otherwise, um, you know, like or closing ideas. Closing ideas. Uh, oh, it, was, it was thanks for having me on on the show. It's really a trip to be back on here. I'm glad you guys are are running it. Um, hey, what's what's the tagline? Successors for ideas. Yeah, do you have a tagline? Submit to the future. Man, that sounds brilliant. 
Okay. We've got an email, okay. email came signature up coming out in the next couple of days. <laughs> Speaking of taglines, maybe just for the, the, the viewers out there, how about oh, that one? Ermagerd. I wore I wore it just for you guys today. Nice. The, lim the limited reads. edition Ermagerd oh Splurk shirt. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Jesse, for hanging out with us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, oh, thanks thank for having you. me. It's great to be here. Well, happy to next time. All right. Bye. Okay. <laughs> See you guys. Bye.